0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Archbishop Charles Chaput is a prelate of the Roman Catholic Church, having served as the ninth Archbishop of Philadelphia. Serving as the leader there of Catholicism in Philadelphia, one of the oldest and largest and most influential dioceses in Roman Catholicism. Prior to his service in Philadelphia, Archbishop Chaput served as the Archbishop of Denver. A native of Kansas, he is author of several books, but his two most recent, Strangers in a Strange Land and Things Worth Dying For, are the topic of our conversation today. Archbishop Chaput, welcome to Thinking in Public.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Mulder. I'm happy to be with you.
0: You have written, uh, just in the last few years, uh, a couple of books. You've written more, but uh, the two books, Strangers in a Strange Land and Things Worth Dying For, uh, seem to express your heart and mind uh, in a way that uh, requires some explanation, I think. How how did you come to the point where you believe these two books were necessary, and what, what, what is this project about?
1: Well, yeah, I, I didn't uh, ever think I'd write books. And uh, I've been kind of talked into it by publishers. Uh, my first book was a very small book that uh, was was published by a very small Kelly publisher. And uh, I, I really fought doing it, but he talked me into doing it. And after you do one, I guess you feel like you're capable of doing others. And uh, the other books I've written have really risen from, um, well, the, the first more serious reflection on our culture was a book called Render Under Caesar. And it was written because there was a Catholic friend of mine who wanted to run for office um as a Democrat. He was pro-life and he just couldn't get the nomination, even though he was very clearly the best of the candidates who were running. And he asked me to write a book on how do Christians manage this rejection of the world. So that was the source of that book. And it he got he got some attention. And then the my publisher in um in uh, New York has been kind of after me the publish. And this last book, you know, I wasn't going to do it, but he convinced me that I needed to say one more thing before I die. So I decided to write a book about things worth dying for and worth living for. And so the, the, really, the books have been simulated by other people rather than a desire on my part to, to write, actually.
0: Well, I understand that. And uh, I'll simply say on behalf of your publisher, uh, you know, we hope you'll write more. Uh, but well, thank you. Before you die, uh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, powerful titles, powerful books. Uh, I think uh, the predicament of, uh, of of those who hold to any kind of strong theism, uh, the predicament of anyone who would claim any kind of Christian identity, the predicament of anyone who would live um, according to even the 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 very faith that gave birth to Western civilization we now find ourselves living as strangers in a strange land. Um, it's, a, it's a new experience, not for Christians, but it is a new experience for um, the, the Christians in the United States, who as recently as the, the last, uh, say, quarter of the 20th century, kind of suffered under the illusion that things might be going our way. Uh, it turned out that uh, the future unfolded very differently.
1: It certainly has, you know, for Catholics, it's a bit different because uh, uh, our country is certainly based, uh, founded on, by people who weren't Catholics. And there was a certain kind of anti-Catholic prejudice in those early days, as I think that we're against the Baptists as well. And so we really worked hard to fit in. And I think with the election of John Kennedy back in the 1960s, we had a sense that we finally made it. And uh, And the danger of that, of course, is that we've also compromised ourselves very much in order to make it, and uh, we don't look very much different from the world around us. And that's really an unfortunate thing, because to be a follower of Jesus is to be a new creature, somebody that really doesn't fit into the ordinary ways of the world. And we have to be willing to accept that uh, consequence and responsibility that flows from it.
0: Uh, In previous communications, I've shared with you that uh, I am an obstinate Protestant, and uh, you are a Catholic Archbishop. That's the
1: best kind to be, but I think you need to be someone who believes what you believe. And that's what's wrong with the churches today. We don't want people mm-hmm. who are committed to what the church stands for.
0: Well, I think that's what makes a conversation like this very interesting. Uh, a Roman Catholic Archbishop who represents a very conscious continuity with the Catholic tradition, and a uh, Protestant who represents a very conscious continuity with the uh, with, with the Protestant uh, tradition, the Protestant faith. We all of a sudden find ourselves in conversations that uh, our ancestors might not have had, uh, because in some ways we lived in different worlds, even though we inhabited the same nation. You look through certainly the early decades of the 20th century. And, uh, and yet now we find ourselves uh, kind of in a life raft together. And it has led to some very interesting conversations.
1: It has. And I think in the past, unfortunately, we've kind of defined ourselves as not being a Protestant or not being a Catholic, rather than as being disciples of Jesus Christ. And once we focus more clearly on the foundational identity that we have as sons and daughters of God and disciples of Jesus, then we're able to have a conversation with someone who, although they're fully uh, in the same family, are at least cousins, if not brothers. And I think that's so very, very important. And we have a common, I, I, I shouldn't say we have a common enemy because we have no enemies other than sin, but there is someone who sees us commonly as their enemy. And it's important for us to support one another.
0: Yes, and, and just to, to speak candidly, I think one of the dangers is uh, doctrinal ambiguity. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's extremely important that, uh, that the kind of conversations that I think would be healthy are between Roman Catholics who really know what it means to be Roman Catholic and Protestants who really know what it means to be Protestant, right down to all the enduring doctrinal disagreements. But the, the forces of our age are not seeking to separate Catholics and Protestants. They're seeking to separate all those who would hold any, any substantial form of theism, uh, not to mention monotheism, revealed monotheism, and in particular, historic uh, Christianity is represented uh, through uh, the, the Christian church and in its institutional forms. What we now face is, uh, is a secular culture that is increasingly hostile not to Catholicism, not to Protestantism, but to uh, to any form of historic Christianity that would have any kind of public meaning.
1: Or any authority at all beyond the authority of the state or their version of the state. It isn't it isn't even their even the family, as you know, is under attack if it, if it has priority in our life over the over the government. You know, one thing I'd like to say in response to what you said about the doctrinal differences, I, I think it's really important for you and I and for all those who, who are disciples of Jesus to take his words about unity seriously, and not only to discuss those theological issues out of curiosity, but to try to find some way through to a common faith that is authentically faithful to our traditions. Because, you know, Jesus prayed that uh, we would be one as he and the Father are one, and the unity within the, the Trinity is, is an absolute, absolute unity, not only of affection, but also of, of everything. And so we, we need to work on that. But in the meantime, we can't let our differences stand in the way of uh, what 90% or whatever it is that we have in common. And uh, we need to support one another and then defend one another uh, against the attacks of the common, uh, the person who sees us as their enemy. You can see, I resist calling the other person the enemy. The devil is the only that. real yeah. adversary that we have. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, the, uh, the predicament of the, of the confessing evangelical is uh, that uh, we have to continue to, uh, to make distinctions between saving grace and, and common grace and to understand wh- which is the arena of, of our conversation. The, uh, the other problem is that there is the temptation towards uh, some kind of doctrinal harmonization that doesn't take doctrine seriously. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the doctrinal differences between Roman Catholicism in its official teachings and uh, and uh, evangelical Protestantism in its in its confessional teachings, they're they're not minor doctrinal differences. They come right down to the definition of the gospel. But there is a doctrinal um, there is a, a a doctrinal foundation, even as you say, in the Trinity, in uh, in in uh, the reality of divine revelation. Differences about how that's to be understood in the authority of the church versus the authority of Scripture, but. Those conversations are now being held in a context in which the larger culture wants to be done with us in terms of any public consequence, Uh, because we stand uh, in the same position of saying to a culture, we believe in a much higher authority than even the democratic process. We We stand upon a much higher authority and a higher accountability. Even then, the Constitution of the United States. And we see both of those as precious achievements that are made possible by a moral consensus that you are trying to destroy.
1: Absolutely. Speaking, I agree with speaking you. of those, those on the other side issues. of the culture. Yes. Those are the issues today. And we have to be faithful to what we know to be true, not just believe to be true, but with conviction, yes. to believe with conviction, knowledge. Yes. Yes. And one of the things I respect
0: about you, Archbishop, is that you are a man of conviction and you're known for that. And you are known for that. Uh, within Roman Catholic circles, as well as the larger uh, American uh, context. And uh, each of us, in our own way, has to continually fight for uh, the continued fidelity of, uh, of, of our own beliefs uh, in the context of a, a world that wants to nullify uh, and uh, basically uh, uh, depropositionalize uh to subvert w- what we believe to be the central doctrines uh, of our faith
1: uh, that's right in, in the catholic church it's there's a uh, temptation to go in the direction of what some refer to as the pastoral which means to set aside the intellectual theological issues in order to minister kindly and lovingly to the individual but i i've been absolutely convinced in my life that the best pastoral practice flows from conviction and from faith and uh we can help someone along the way to hell as well as on the way to heaven if we're not careful about being faithful to uh, the things that Jesus has taught us and it, it passed on to us by the apostles.
0: Yes, after all, uh, those truths are not up for our negotiation. No, and not. Uh, the Christian faith is a composite whole. I think Catholics and Protestants would agree upon this. It's a, it's a comprehensive truth claim. And uh, I think what makes our time a bit different is that the, uh, the, the challenges to Christian truth are now at that very foundational level. It, it's it's, it's, it's a, the very possibility that there could be a God, uh, a creator God, sovereign, who intervenes in human history and who has actually revealed to us truths that are contrary uh, to our own inclinations. That, that now runs so much against the grain of our culture that uh, we are considered enemies of the public good.
1: In in our church, we also have a philosophical debate going on. Uh, Now, I don't want to get too too uh, technical about this because if uh, it just would take forever. But you know, this an epistemological issue. Can we really know anything to be true forever, or does truth is truth always relative, and we understand it differently depending on our perspective and history and our place and time? And uh, and that's really dangerous if we see the the uh, gift of faith given to us in the scriptures by Jesus as a gift you know it's something we receive not something we play around with or change but it's something that we need to receive but if you don't believe there's any truth then you don't see faith as a gift you just see it as a beginning point for your own reflections and that's a very bad and dangerous place to be for someone who wants to be a faithful disciple of jesus
0: so let me uh let me push a little on an issue
1: if uh, if i were
0: trying to speak uh thinking as a Roman Catholic, speaking to a Protestant, I would say, uh, Protestantism, Fisiparius, uh, uh, disunited into different denominations, uh, rejecting magisterial authority from, uh, from Rome. You're in danger always of losing this conception of truth, its uh, objectivity, its absolute nature, its revealed character, and, uh, and uh, its unchanging character. Uh, so that, that's been a conversation throughout the history of, uh, of the Christian sure. church, especially since the 16th century. But I just want to turn to you and say, so how do you explain how with the papacy, with the magisterium, and, and, and with the, uh, the doctrinal authority of the Roman Catholic Church, how can those issues have arisen within Catholic circles in, in the last several decades?
1: Well, Catholics are not immune from the culture in which they live, and that's especially true about Catholic academic circles. The universities, as you know, have given themselves over to this kind of uh, lack of commitment to anything being substantially true. Um, and the, the relativism is a way of life for that uh, group of elite, and so it has it's affected our church and, and the, the priests of our church and the bishops of our church who have a unique teaching role within our community. Um, are influenced by these theologians. And if they've been uh, raised in a kind of a Galian system where the way you discover truth is posit one thing would be challenged by another and arrive at a third, that is in some ways an evolution from the first, uh, uh, it it isn't faithful, but they they haven't um, made that connection that it isn't faithful. Um, You know, we've had a history, a long history as a Catholic church and we've had many moments of great failure and, Uh, The leaders of our church, from the Pope to the bishops to the local clergy to the lay people who are also leaders in the church, have failed miserably to be faithful to the the, um, commitments of their baptism or or their ordination. And uh, and nonetheless, we believe the truth, um, as you and I have received it, from the earliest days of the church still lives. And so I I am not naive in thinking that every word that – the Pope speaks is infallible because we don't believe that we believe that he can only speak about things that the church knows and has spoken about already. He can clarify, but he can't contradict what was taught in the past. And if a Pope would happen to do that, or a Bishop would happen to do that, then we have to be faithful to the tradition that was given to us by the apostles and the scriptures is, as you would understand it, as having priority over anybody's with authority's opinion so we, those of us who are in leadership have to submit ourselves to the Scriptures. We can't uh, decide that we can interpret it to mean something that it doesn't say. We're all originalists when it comes to interpreting the Bible if you're going to be a faithful Christian.
0: Yeah, well, we certainly better be. Um, I, I think one way that I try to explain this to, to people when I, I speak about these issues is that throughout most of uh, Western history, let's just say, uh, from the uh, medieval period, uh, until the rise of the modern age, the debates were over what God said, how to understand what God said. the uh, The main controversy now is that we would claim that God has said anything, and and that is a changed intellectual situation. and And you're right; it has affected the uh, the academy. I mean, my my task was to bring this seminary, which was uh, had been for decades headed in a very liberal direction, uh, back to. Uh, back to its conservative confessional roots and, and commitments. Uh, but the fact is that changed intellectual situation creates a, a predicament for Christians in the West that I think uh, most Christians simply weren't and are not prepared for.
1: Oh, yeah, I think you're right. You know, It's especially true in the Catholic Church. where We've always prided ourselves on having a common faith that is authoritative and it's interpreted very clearly by the central authority of the, the Church. And so the, the, this time, the last, you know, last 15 years or so has been much more difficult for us. Ever, ever since the Second Vatican Council, actually, there's been a lot of uh, clergy who've claimed that, that they can take the church in a, in a direction in a direction other than the original tradition. And uh, we were blessed to have leadership of Pope John Paul II to bring us back from some of those directions. But it, it seems like that there's a lot of confusion again today in, in our uh, Roman Catholic communities.
0: So i uh, I studied Roman Catholic theological method as a part of my doctoral study and study. Get you in ad, trouble? <laughs> uh, well, it clarified things for me. It, uh, you you uh, you perhaps might be disappointed and unsurprised. It made me more Protestant, but nonetheless, it instructed me tremendously. And I've been in an ongoing and very fruitful, you know, intellectual conversation. Sometimes through books, sometimes uh, honestly, and, and uh, in privileged in person. But uh, uh, some of the figures that I focused on in trying to understand theological method were uh, David Tracy at the University of Chicago and uh, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, who had been in Munich and uh, was then uh, uh, the head of the Sacred Congregation in Rome. And uh, I, I, I will say for the record uh, uh, that uh, Ratzinger is one of the most brilliant theological minds uh, uh, of our times. and. Uh, his incisive critique of modernity, I, I would say even surpassing that of, uh, of John Paul II in theological terms, uh, 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 later as Pope Benedict XVI, uh, Ratzinger's critique of modernity, I think, it, is prophetic. And he started seeing this in the 70s and in the 80s, maybe even in the 60s. He was, he was writing about it in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, it showed up first in... Place is very visible to him there in Germany. And Germany's on the front lines again. But before I rush to that, uh, you know, the the recovery appeared to be taking place theologically in terms of a more conservative consolidation, but it didn't seem to last.
1: No, it it changed rather quickly, Um, surprisingly so, because most of us who think like I do thought that both uh, John Paul II and Benedict had lived long enough and had. uh, ministered as Pope long enough to have that group very much retired and ineffective. But they were waiting in the wings, and once they, they had a period of time where they were freer to express themselves, they came back in great force. But, but they're also all very old. There are very few younger, younger people who are following in their footsteps among our theologians. I agree with you. Know, I think Benedict XVI or, or Joseph Ratzinger is really the, the finest theologian of the, the church in the modern era. There's a new biography uh, uh, about him by John Seywald, which I would recommend, and it shows that right from the time of the Second Vatican Council, he began to worry about this kind of uh, relativistic uh, thinking that was a danger to truth.
0: Yes, and by the way, you know uh, Hans Küng recently died. uh, there in Germany. Yes, uh, I, I, uh, I was very interested to see, because I, I, I knew he had a friendship in, in the beginning with, uh, with uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, and it's unclear to a Protestant to know how to refer to someone who becomes Pope backwards in time, so forgive right. me. Joseph
1: Ratzinger is fine. I think okay. it's fine. Uh,
0: as, uh, as he was uh, nominated to the faculty there in Munich, it was Kung who nominated him. Uh, and they were considered kind of uh, compatriots uh, intellectually and theologically. but Kuhn continued moving to the left. and uh, something happened that led Joseph Ratzinger in into a very different direction, such that he would eventually become head of the sacred congregation, eventually pope and and seen as theologically, I'm not going to say morally, but but theologically. Uh, even more theologically definitive than than John Paul II on many
1: issues. Well, I think he wrote many of the things about uh, faith and morals that Pope uh, John Paul II issued in his own name. I mean, there's there's no way that Pope, being as busy as he, as he is, could have written all of them. John Paul II wrote. So he was very dependent on Ratzinger, and and uh, I think Ratzinger influenced him a whole lot. That difference between he and, and Kung is uh, very clearly explained in this biography that I mentioned to you. It, and it, it really developed very soon after the council. And part of it, you know, that Kung tended to play to the cameras and to the modern world and what was popular. And, and uh, Joseph Retzinger was a much more serious, reflective uh, theologian who was aware of the consequences of certain turns in thinking. That the others didn't seem to be aware of.
0: So, just to to play this out a bit, the 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 context of uh, many of these questions is the church in the world, and uh, so just using that language, uh, Vatican II represented a, a, w- what I would have to say from the Protestant side was a radical uh, resituation of uh, of re- the Roman Catholic understanding of the Catholic Church in the world. Uh, appeared to be much more world affirming in in, in the modern age, and uh, and yet forces were unleashed. Some of them in the conciliar documents, but forces were unleashed uh, a giornamento a doctrinal change that uh, that in the eyes of some had no boundaries. And so it seems to me, and this has relevance to Protestant evangelical Christians. There are those who uh, we know would argue for this unending po- process of accommodating Christian truth to the world. That, that seems to be the great division in Catholicism, between those who, who believe that, that there is a constant need to update the faith into conformity with, uh, with contemporary modes of thinking, and those who believe that the faith fundamentally cannot be changed from the time of the apostles until Jesus
1: comes. Well, both you and I agree that uh, the faith can't be changed. The Second Vatican Council, I I grew up in that time. I was ordained a priest in 1970. The council ended in 68. And I remember the optimism present among all of us who were students at that time about the possibility of uh, massive conversions of the world around us if the gospel were explained in a way that was friendlier or a way that was more easily understood. And uh, I, I know you know this, but uh, the understanding of, of, of renewal was not to change the faith for the present, but to go back to the origins of the faith, much like Protestants have always wanted us to do, and to get rid of the things that were accrued rather than the the uh, preaching of the gospel in its clearest form. And and see, that's a very good process. I think the church needs it constantly be renewed in terms of going back to its sources. And... Uh, but I think there was an unfounded optimism that the world would listen to us if we just were friendlier. And uh, it didn't. We got friendlier. We opened the doors of the church to the world, and they didn't come in, but many of us went out. And that, that is unfortunate. But I, I think that at its heart, the Vatican Council really is an effort on the part of the Roman Catholic Church to go back to its origin. And I think it's, a, it's been a, a blessing of the Holy Spirit for the Roman Catholic Church in the 20th and 21st centuries.
0: I was speaking to a prominent uh, American Roman Catholic thinker a few years ago, and uh, he said something that surprised me. He said, uh, you know, uh, as a boy, he said, I, I really resented no uh, no meat on Friday. I, I really resented so many of the structural issues that set Catholics apart from the larger culture. But he said, I look back at it, and I think, if nothing else, that created a structure that re- reminded us every every week of the fact that we're different uh we hold to different truth we we serve a different authority uh in one sense we uh, we live under a different regime uh, and uh he said the lack of that uh in, in, for successive generations has meant that that the the instinct to be more like the world is is constant we have no particular protestant analogy to that but it struck me in the fact that I'm repeating it to you now uh, you you do have to wonder how seductive the modern age is, uh, and uh, and just what kind of resources it takes, even habits of the heart, even habits of of, of devotion, uh, just to make very clear to ourselves constantly that we we hold to a, a higher authority. We are we are citizens of a heavenly city. It's it's a very difficult predicament.
1: It certainly is, and I think families who commit themselves to those kind of protective customs in their family, in their homes, uh, help their children in a very real way to be more faithful to the gospel as they as they get older. So I I really do believe that even though they aren't uh, based on scripture, some of these uh, practices can help us have a firmer and clearer identity of uh, who we are and what we're committed to.
0: Yeah, you know the the distinction between the church and the world is one that. Let, let me say, Archbishop, for, for Protestants in the United States, uh, you take the establishment Protestants of, say, the, uh, the, the Congregationalists, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, the American Northeast, they certainly didn't see much distinction between the church and the world because they basically built the world uh, that uh, that is here in the United States. They were the establishment and the culture. So what's the distinction between the church and the world? Um, but those churches very soon— accommodated themselves to the world in such a way that, uh, you know, quite frankly, um, th- there's just not much residue of historic Christian Orthodox commitment in, in, in many of those churches. And I don't think there'd be much argument about that. Um,
1: I, I think not either. Yeah. And the similar kind of thing has gone on in the Catholic Church in terms of the religious communities of men and women, the religious orders. You know, the, the more that, for example, the, the more that the women religious began to dress like everybody else and live like everybody else, the fewer people join them, because why bother if you're going to live like everyone else and not be distinct? So it's uh, just one small example. But, you know, we work very hard as Catholics to, to fit into that Northeastern Protestant ethos. And uh, unfortunately, we, we succeeded too much, especially in terms of the uh, political elite of the Catholic Church. And we're dealing with that today. And the issues around uh, President Biden and Speaker Pelosi and those kind of folks who really are more American than they are Christian, I think.
0: You've made some pretty strong arguments about that, that uh, I I think are really important. Um, You point out in your books, uh, and in these two books in particular, that the the responsibility of a bishop is indeed to scrutinize uh, these issues and uh, And yet the uh, the bishops in the United States seem to be uh, quite uncertain about how to apply that to, say, prominent Catholic uh, political figures such as Speaker Pelosi, President Biden, who really are living in obstinate defiance of official church teaching on the uh, the issue of abortion.
1: I, I certainly don't understand that. You're absolutely right. And uh, the vast majority of Roman Catholic bishops today would would side where you and I would side on that kind of issue. But there's been an artificial desire, I think it's artificial, to be united and not to show our division. So we've avoided issues that would require uh, exposing to the public the fact that we are divided. And This is one of them, you know, and I think it's beginning to show itself this year because there has been a group of bishops, a small group, who've opposed the more traditional understanding of the reception of Holy Communion by uh, Catholics. Um, They are much smaller than the majority of bishops, but they're coming out in opposition to the tradition of the church on that matter. And I, I think there's a temptation on the part of the other bishops to be quiet and kind of back down so that uh, we don't show divisions. And it's better to, to be honest and show the truth rather than to uh, uh, leave people in error by being quiet about important things. You know, what the, the point is this, that if they receive communion in our church's understanding means that you're united with the church on what it believes. And if you don't believe what the church believes, that's you shouldn't receive communion. That's what excommunication is all about. It means you're, it doesn't mean you're going to hell. It means that you aren't, you aren't in communion. So you shouldn't receive communion. Um, And uh, I think that's still very important today. And it's a scandal that people like the president and Speaker Pelosi are, are giving an example to other Catholics that other Catholics shouldn't have.
0: In uh, my Baptist church, uh, where my wife and I are members and, uh, and, and where I teach and am uh, very much a part of the congregation, this past Lord's Day, we had the Lord's Supper. And uh, before serving the Lord's Supper, we stood together and read together our church covenant, uh, making a very clear statement that the Lord's Supper is for those who are within this covenant. And uh, it is it is a shared meal in honor of Christ and and by his in an obedience to his command. And it struck me that what our church, uh, just a church of a few hundred Baptists in uh, in South you know downtown Louisville, was doing on Sunday morning was the most profoundly countercultural act uh, I could imagine. People think of countercultural acts as you know protests on the street. I think the most countercultural act of which I've ever been a part. Uh, was a Baptist congregation standing to read together uh, in worship our uh, church covenant and then to share the Lord's Supper together. Um, But that requires what we in the Baptist world would call fencing the table. It requires saying, this is not a table for the world. This is a table for the church.
1: Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And if I showed up, I hope you would tell me I'm not allowed to receive uh, communion in your community because I, I don't ascribe to the, the covenant. And that's what this is yes, all sir. about in a Catholic church. Right. And that doesn't mean that you don't respect me or that I don't respect right. you or that we don't even love each other as friends. It just means we don't share faith, so we shouldn't pretend.
0: Yes. That's well, eloquently said and, uh, and respectfully said, and it's true. Uh, you, you would not uh, uh, be welcome at the table. But— you, that this leads to discussion in which, speaking of the theme you mentioned earlier, we hope one day, uh, first of all, to uh, in conversation right now, um, uh, make more certain that we know and love the truth by our conversations with one another, and Absolutely. even where we disagree, maybe especially where we disagree, uh, that's where we need to think uh, more clearly, even if uh. Even if that disagreement continues, as in many cases it has, I mean, I think back to the disagreements of the 16th century. I don't pretend that uh, that uh, we're smarter than they were, but uh, but we do have a different context in which to speak.
1: And, well, we're living uh, in a pluralistic yeah. society, and they and they didn't. You know that this cancel culture of today has been common in the life of the church. That we used to cancel Protestants. You know, we'd burn them at a stake and. The Protestants did that to us when they had the opportunity to do that. And I, I think it's bad anytime. You know, one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church has learned in the United States and has shared with the rest of the church is the importance of being a faithful Christian in a pluralistic society where you can cooperate with one another and you don't have a need to cancel the other out of the discussion. And uh if you if you aren't able to do that, it means in some ways you're not very confident of the faith. You want to make sure it's it's guaranteed by force rather than freedom. And the Baptists have always been uh, very clear about their commitment to religious freedom and the importance of the individual believer having the freedom to, to believe in, and not to be forced. Yes.
0: Archbishop, of the Baptists are back in the original predicament in the United States uh, and much to the surprise of most Baptists. Uh, that original predicament is uh, finding ourselves uh, harassed by the regime and we that is by the the powers that be and uh, and and we are again uh we're looking at the greatest challenge uh in in i think our lifetimes for certain uh, to religious liberty coming in the form of something like the equality act uh which uh is is now basically depending upon the senate as to whether it will uh, it will pass into law or not but in its current form That law would say that a Catholic school can't operate on Catholic conviction. A a Baptist seminary or college can't operate on Baptist conviction. The big shock of my life is that this has all come so soon. Because as a young theologian, honestly, I did see this coming, uh, but I did not see it coming so quickly.
1: I think things are going to come more quickly yet because of the COVID lockdown and the separation of Christians from their church communities through these these last many months uh, it has come quickly in one sense but it's it has its origins you know in the original sin of course but it it has its origins also in a, a growing um, indifference to religion in our country which goes back to the 1950s you know when i was a, a first born about 75% of the Catholics went to mass on sundays now it's down to 20 25% and it's it's because people don't really believe anymore or they don't it's not worth their time or they, they're not convinced about the importance of uh gathering together for prayer for their uh for the faith of their children and that's that's so sad to see so I fully agree with what you said.
0: I want to ask you some interesting questions. We we read the same people in both Strangers in a strange land and things worth dying for I have to tell you I I felt like I was in conversation not only with you but with so many uh uh, other figures in your book, some of whom are friends and acquaintances, and uh, authors, and and some of her dad, as a matter of fact. But uh, you you raise a a, a number of names uh, that uh, and authors that that you cite, and, and it makes me want to ask you some questions about contemporary conversations, and and this is the predicament we're in. We now are asking questions that I think our own uh, predecessors in office would have considered. Uh, nearly irrational, uh, unthinkable, and so we're asking questions about whether or not uh, the Christian Church can uh, can really uh, operate in a situation in which the democratic ideal is being transformed into something so hostile. I think of Patrick Denine and uh, and his important work. Uh, I've been very much in conversation with his his work. I've, he's been a guest on this program. You good, mentioned here, uh, you know, what, what, what do you think of his proposal that uh, that modern uh, liberalism and by that we mean the the, the modern ideal of uh, of uh, constitutional liberalism uh, eventually just turns out to be um, inherently subversive of any kind of faith?
1: Well, you know, I've had to go in that direction, although I as time goes on, I'm beginning to believe what he says is true. You know, I was, my. I mentioned earlier the book, uh, Render or Caesar, I was much more uh, optimistic about the direction of our country, even 15 years ago than I am today. Um, you know, it's it's been a foundational belief of Christians, you know, it's clearly articulated in the writings of the fathers of the church that true freedom is the freedom to do what's right and good, not the freedom to do what you want. And Democracy tends to uh, define freedom as simply the majority vote and majority rules, and we've had huge problems with mob rule in, in the history of the world. And uh, if that's what if that's what it ultimately means, then is we are, the American experiment is going to end in a very sad way. But I, I do do still believe that the founders of our country um, understood. That And that's why they tried to have limited government and tried to put uh, in place uh, Institutional processes which would force people to compromise and discuss, you know, like (laughs) the the way the Senate operates, for example So, uh, you know, I haven't given up on our country entirely, but I think that uh, Certainly, we don't have any guarantee that we're going to exist forever That's only true about uh, the word of God and, and the church Isn't true about anything else. So, I hope it does last. I hope it returns to a greater fidelity to its founding principles. I haven't given up yet, but I'm I'm worried. I'm worried.
0: Yes, and uh, the reason why I haven't given up is because there is no alternative. And so, yeah, it works. It it works. uh, Yes, you you look across uh, all governmental and political systems, and uh, this is the only one capable of democratic remedy. And and Mm -hmm. so we have to keep working for some kind of Constitutional democratic remedy, but the, I agree with Denine that uh, that what we now see is that the modern age has unleashed any number of devils. And uh, you know, looking retroactively in history, the, uh, the the fundamentals of the society were held together by, say, institutions uh, such as the universities coming out of the medieval era, but but continuing on that were that saw themselves as having the task of making citizens and. Uh, and that continued very much in the United States and uh, institutions, including, uh, and, and this is where, as a Protestant using the word church, it's a little loaded because uh, I I don't believe, for instance, that an apostate church is a church, uh, but I've got to refer to them as the Episcopal church. <laughs> and so, uh, sure, understand. so you, you understand the, the vocabulary difference here. But those churches as institutions were the pillars of civilization, uh, n- not only in terms of being the vessels of revelation, but the uh, the engines of forming people fit for a democratic culture. But those institutions, by and large, have now turned openly hostile to the very idea of uh, of any moral order that would sustain democracy. And that, that's what I don't think we can define. I, do, I, I, the, and I, I think Deneen's careful in his argument. I hear it misrepresented saying democracy itself, um, uh, uh, is, uh, is, is inherently destabilizing. And, uh, and by the, by that, I mean constitutional government, self-government, but, uh, I think it's the, the fact that it sits in a larger context. And when that context is destroyed, uh, it can't exist on its own.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, that, uh, Concern was raised by Tocqueville when he visited our country back in the days immediately following the founding. Uh, so it's been a concern even from the very beginning. I think it was also debated in the Federalist Papers and the like. So it's uh, we've been aware of the dangers from the, from the very very beginning. Uh, I um, unfortunately the the most important mediating community is the family, and it also has uh, been deliberately undermined by much of what's going on in contemporary culture. And if if our families fall apart, everything else will fall apart. I still in my own lived experience, my pastoral awareness, uh, most Americans are not with the elite universities and in thinking, but they're quiet and silent. They're afraid that they'll be uh, canceled if they speak up. So they don't speak up. So if we can stir up uh, the community Beginning with the members who associate with our churches, but also go get the get the members of the churches to stir up the communities in which they live, we have some opportunities to turn things back. There seems to be some good movement in some of the uh, school districts now, where you know that uh, radical race theory was being promoted, where parents have started to get involved and are pushing back. I wish they had done the same thing when it comes to gender ideology, and I yes. hope they will. Will.
0: Well, in some places they are, like the state of Connecticut, a lawsuit going on right now, you know, concerning uh, whether biological males can compete as uh, as females in high school sport. But that that leads to another issue, and that is that uh, when when uh, and, and I'm a bit younger than you, but I'm, I'm going to put us in the same generation. And uh, when when I was growing up, um, I didn't really know the concept of common grace. So that, that, that had to come later. As a boy, I didn't have that vocabulary. I, but I, I would say, looking back, I had a confidence that common grace meant that, uh, that just about everybody figured out marriage in the family. That, uh, you know, j- just about everybody. And of course, now I would argue, as a, as a theologian, that uh, it's because of creation order. Uh, and, and so everyone could basically figure that out. My world made sense because we know who... We knew who were males and who were females. We, we, we knew that a marriage was a, a man and a woman. Uh, we knew that the family was this. And, and that was so basic to society that it preserved certain moral goods and virtues and, and preserved society. Um, the rebellion against creation order is something that is basically new in the entire history of Western civilization. And,
1: I, I think it is. You know, Is there any recovery from this kind of confusion? Well, I think the, the recovery is resistance if we uh, it just it has no inherent sense. It doesn't in itself, it makes no sense. Um, you know, obviously two men cannot have a baby, two women cannot have a baby. and the world is dependent on the procreative nature of human beings which share in that creative power of God to give give life and give birth. So you know we, we refer to the kind of natural understanding of what's true as nat- natural law in the Catholic tradition. And uh, I've never understood why contemporary philosophers say those kind of arguments don't stand anymore. It seems like they stand from common sense all the time. You know, we we naturally want to be what's good for us. And there's, of course, that resistance, which is sin. Uh, but still, there is a desire for good if we certainly, if we learn to control our, our uh, cooperate with God's grace in controlling our sinful nature, we we end up, choosing what God wants us to choose.
0: Yes. Well, raising the natural law, you raise some fascinating common ground uh, of conversation between Roman Catholics and uh, and many Protestant theologians, although the natural law functions differently in our systems um, because in the Catholic understanding, natural law is understood to be uh, or potentially to be persuasive to unbelievers. And uh, in our Protestant system, we, we, we don't believe that uh, the natural law is as... Uh, as persuasive to unbelievers as uh, as many might have hoped, but it is instructive to believers, and and that's where Archbishop fascinating things are taking place right now in the Protestant appropriation of the natural law in in order to uh, to help to uh, make plain the teachings of Scripture on these issues.
1: And that's good so, well, it is a fascinating, yeah, it's a, fasc- yeah it's, a,
0: it's a it's a it's a fascinating retrieval of sorts because. This is in the Reformation. I mean, it's it's very much in Martin Luther and his doctrine of of the orders, uh, which meant the orders of creation, and uh, so it. But in a world in which all the institutions basically affirmed, in their own way, a Christian common grace understanding of marriage and morality, you didn't have to use these arguments. No, but but when you're being told that uh, that. Uh, you know, Mrs. Green, the third grade teacher, is now Mr. Green,
1: well, then you've got a big problem. And I think most people who look at Mr. Green will see that there's a problem, because uh, there's no way we can really uh, hide our born identity. It's who we are.
0: And we believe that, uh, and I know you'd agree with this, that a part of God's sovereignty in creation is that God establishes our identity, and that identity is not separate from our body. Our, everything, our body everything
1: is a gift. Everything yes. is grace. That's and, and
0: it's a material revelation to us. Uh, our, our, our body is one of the ways God speaks to us, saying, I made you in my image. I made you for my glory. I made you to flourish. I made you as who you are. Uh, the circumstances of, of our birth, the circumstances of our, of our being are unchosen by us. And uh, yes. they're gifts of God, and they're, they're revelations to us. God has a purpose for me to have been born in 1959 that uh, I am to discover uh, in in terms of just God's plan for my life. You know, Archbishop often point out that uh, ontology will trump autonomy. That's one of the, I won't <laughs> I won't uh, copyright that as my uh, as as Mueller's law, but my students know I talk about it all the time. That at the well, end of the a, it's day, it's a great
1: saying. I'm going to remember that. It's a great ontology
0: saying. will trump autonomy. And the illustration I give is that let's say American civilization dies out and uh, the Lord tarries and and a couple of, you know, centuries later, they come back and excavate any city in the United States. All of the DNA is going to cry out XX or XY, regardless of what anyone's driver's license said. That's right. Uh, Ontology wins. Uh, And and as you pointed out, human reproduction is something as simple as human reproduction. But now. I just uh, was reminded that the, uh, the budget proposal from the Biden administration refers to pregnant people rather than yeah, women.
1: They have great pressures. And they parent one and parent two rather than mother and father and all those kind of things. They're really designed to try to educate the next generation into a, an ideology that uh, doesn't uh, distinguish people according to the way that God distinguishes us.
0: One other issue here that I think I think you would affirm is that, uh, and Mary Eberstadt's done some great work uh, in this. Um, I know you know her work; uh,
1: she's a great lady, know, and,
0: yes, and very brave lady. And you know, asking the question, you know, which comes first: uh, the family or religious uh, identity? And uh, I think the the average person would say that it is uh, religious conviction leads persons to. Love the family, live out the family, reproduce, raise children. Uh, she points out that uh, at least in terms of much argument, you can you can actually make the case it goes the other way around, and uh, that uh, where you find high fertility, you find high faithfulness. Uh, and uh, I think it, it, that again, is common grace. It is uh, that uh, a child, a, a child is all of a sudden. Uh, this infinitely wonderful gift that you can't explain other than by by divine creation, and you also cannot raise that child uh, without your own devotion. E- even even if it's a lesbian couple, they they have to try to emulate the family in some way, the marriage in some way, in terms of raising that child. There are there are needs that are there. You and I believe it can never be adequately uh, uh, mirrored. But it is interesting that even the notion of same-sex marriage, and Robert George at Princeton's made this argument, even the the, the notion of something like like, uh, same-sex marriage is, in its own way, a strange attempt to try to normalize what can't be normalized.
1: Yes, that's true. You know, I have some very good friends who uh, are more liberal than I would be uh, in every way. And when they started having children, the, the wife of the couple maintained that the difference between men and women were all something you learned from society. And uh, after she had she had, a, she had uh, two daughters and then a son, but after the birth of her son, she said to me, you know, you're right. He was different from the time he was in the womb than my daughters, and he really came out wanting to play with guns. And it wasn't a result of anything that she or her husband taught him. And I I really think that the differences between men and women were were certainly equal and uh, equally loved by God. But we are different, very different kind of human beings, and we should rejoice in that rather than trying to hide the differences and pretend that we're all the same because we're not.
0: Well, that's a central uh, facet of Christian teaching throughout all the all the centuries, and that is the human flourishing actually takes place only in correspondence with God's revealed truth and with the structure of creation, with the uh, commands of God's law, and uh, so. We're often, you know, portrayed as those who don't want people to find their happiness. We're actually the people who are certain they can find their happiness only in the God who made them as they are for his glory. And uh, if, if we're opposed to same-sex marriage as we are, it's not because we want to rob people of joy. It's because we actually want them to know real joy.
1: That's right. There was a book I read when I was in... Uh... College, I believe, called Holiness is Wholeness, and the, the the principle was that if you really want to be whole as a human being and happy, you had to be choose to be holy. I I think that there are many examples of people who are not particularly whole psychologically, who are really good people and and despite their struggles uh, would be holy. So I think there's a limit to that, but I think basically that's what God God has created us to make us happy, and the way to be happy is to follow His plan. And, not to become autonomous and substitute our plan for his plan.
0: Your most recent book, Things Worth Dying For, Thoughts on a Life Worth Living. You know, Archbishop, as we bring this to a close, I have to tell you, I think we're living in a time in which there just is no consensus answer to the question, not only what's worth dying for, but whether anything's worth dying for. And I think that too is a change situation.
1: It is true. When I was a kid, uh, we there were a lot of things that were worth dying for. Personal integrity, truth, you know, my father would have told me that it would be better to be honest than to, to live if the choice was to be dishonest. And we thought that our country was worth dying for. There was a great sense of patriotism and certainly the family and ultimately God. You know, we, we really honored the martyrs of the church because of their willingness to even die for their faith. Uh, Things have changed, and uh, uh, there are a lot of people in this country, I think I I read that 47% of young people today said they wouldn't uh, be willing to die for their country. And that means our country's in trouble if it's not worth dying for. Yes.
0: Archbishop Chaput, it's been such an honor to talk with you. I I tell you, I look forward one day to meeting you in person.
1: I look forward to the same, and I promise prayers for the success of your your gathering as a community to make important decisions for the future.
0: Well, thank you. We will pray for each other. And, thank uh, you. And until we do meet, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public.
1: Thank you very much. I'm honored.
0: Many thanks to my guest, Archbishop Charles Chaput, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, You can find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.